Layers of pastel-colored, heavily embellished silken clothing for men as well as women are mirrored in rooms adorned from floor to ceiling in delicately hand-painted, idyllic, verdant scenes or exotic portrayals of the Orient, the imagined perfection of both near and far. Ornamentation for the sake of it is everything. Fragrant wisteria drips across perfectly symmetrical facades. Trims and tassels finish drapes and upholstery. Extravagant gilt frames surround flattering portraits, while elegantly patterned dinnerware and fluted colored glass goblets adorn tables laden with food. Yeah, they're... <laughs> the... It, I, the, it definitely... I, I, they're definitely, you're right. You're definitely. Welcome to Street Sweeper. Welcome. We're back. I'm uh, co-host Will. I am co-host Ricardo. Today, we're going to be talking about right-wing architecture. Yes. What is that? Right. Yeah, the, we, the majority of what we've been covering has been kind of critiques of the mainstream, right? Yeah. And the mainstream in architecture essentially presents as liberal. Yeah. Even though, of course, our underlying critique is that, well, it's actually right-wing. Yeah. Yeah. Even Even when it purports to being left even when it purport, purports to yeah, being it's problematic left, yeah. it's it's severely problematic um i mean to, to a certain extent our political framework doesn't even really work terribly well with the categories of left and right as they are given right mm-hmm. uh, but that's a kind of a more complex uh, <laughs> political discussion um but generally there is a certain kind of a I think it's okay to, without overly theorizing, that there is a sort of a layer of left to right politics that are perceived as in, in, within the a kind of the kind of dominant framework of cultural politics and the cultural war. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and this presents itself in many aspects. Uh, this has to do with a certain way of understanding how politics works. That's been going on for several decades. Mm-hmm. A certain paradigm, like from the last 40 years for what politics yeah. are. Yes, exactly. And what the left and the right are within that spectrum. Yeah. And what we would categorize as a culturalist or increasingly more and more culturalist interpretation of politics. Right, right. Um, but um, we're, we're, we're going to try and address today what like through examples of what might be kind of conventionally understood as right-wing architecture, or even like self-identifying mm-hmm. as right-wing architecture. Um, we're going to try and explore how, I guess, in the end, how we've, even these categories are kind of sort of possibly insufficient. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, But also to understand how, we've, like, how effectively right-wing they actually are. Although probably, and not all too surprisingly, not all that much worse than the ones that don't self-identify mm-hmm. as. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, we're, we're just presenting the conclusion ahead of the argument, um, as usual. Um, <laughs> so we probably want to 
want to talk about actual stuff first. Yeah, I wonder what what people would generally have in their mind as right-wing architecture. Yeah. I think there's some, I mean, Patrick Schumacher is notorious for his uh, takes on like the economic character of architecture. Yeah. Like he sort of proud, has a proud neoliberal yeah. kind of position on architecture. Yeah. Uh, so that's a fairly straightforward identification. Yeah, neoliberal in a in, in a strict uh, economic sense. Yeah, free market, uh, like right wing yeah. libertarian. Yeah, yeah. In American terms, market fundamentalism. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, because the neoliberal, the neoliberal, neoliberal as a term itself has it has that's also true. kind of become complicated and morphed, and we 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 would call neoliberals to people who wouldn't explicitly argue for neoliberal economic policies but who, mm, who just accept those premises and then divert their focus yes. to some cultural debate yes yeah. in which they present even potentially progressive uh, yeah. arguments that we would think function as a cover for them for that's, the that's, that's, yeah that's been our that's main been the whole critique thing, yes. so far <laughs> so um but no like people who explicitly like patrick schumacher argue for the status quo of neoliberal uh, market fundamentalism. Yeah, and even its radicalization. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, right-wing libertarian, the right-wing libertarian position that Patrick Schumacher essentially espouses is that actually we don't live in a neoliberal uh, right. framework, it, that, and that's the problem. There's too much state going There's too on. too much state, yeah. Uh, and it's the state that is creating the monopolies, and uh, if, if the state would go away, if public regulation would go away, then we would all go back to small business uh, family enterprises. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and then we would have a <laughs> kind of capitalist utopia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like monopolies come from outside the economic structure of capitalism in this framework, right? And he, he's yeah. part of this. He, he shares this ideological trend, uh, and he then projects it onto architecture, of course. But we'll, we'll we're going to come back to Schumacher, I think, and go into yes. some depth on a, on a on a debate that he was involved in. Um, what other things do you think would come to mind for right wing architecture? I mean, I think the answer is essentially two. There's two ways in which people would think about it, right? One, yeah. one of them is the Patrick Schumacher explicit market fundamentalism, which is increasingly kind of associated with a, a more general distrust of star architecture in general, yeah, and how it serves um, kind of private real estate development, gentrification, uh, build how effect type stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and that is, so with different levels of sophistication, but the, I think this is a sort of continuum of understanding of what right-wing architecture is, mm -hmm. which is a one, one that we kind of find more interesting because it's actually not just about the form of the architecture, but about its economic function and consequences. Yeah. And there's some ambiguities about how Schumacher understands the discipline of architecture yeah. and what architectural practice yes. could be, which we think has some potential in some. Right. <laughs> in some, in some uh, but anyway, way. I want like two I would say two two understandings of right wing architecture. This is one like a range from critique of gentrification, star architecture, all the way to Schumacher's fundamentalism. There's like a continuum there. Yeah. Not everyone reads the whole continuum but place themselves at some point in it. Right. 
But then there's also the kind of more formalistic reading of what would be right-wing architecture, which would be this kind of thing that emerged essentially after World War II, this notion of um, conservative architecture as yeah. being associated with like, quote-unquote, totalitarian regimes um, mm. or, con or conservative mores in yeah. general, yeah. which have to do with rejecting modernism at the time. Now it would be rejecting something like, I don't know, like contemporary forms, avant-garde, contemporary new avant-garde. I think in the terms of those kinds stuff. of debates, anything with recent technology yeah. issuing traditional ornament would be considered modern, quote-unquote. Yeah, yeah, Like yeah. Schumacher would be modern. Yeah. Frank Gehry would be modern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, it's the like superficial, like, I don't know, uh, the kind of terrible discourse you see in like interior decoration magazines. Yeah, like, exactly. There's only two styles, classical and modern, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's cl classical living room and a modern bedroom. Yeah. Um, it's that kind of thought. And in architecture, this manifests itself uh, at, kind of, at a kind of deep subconscious level even. I would say it's pretty much everyone thinks in these terms to a certain extent, even if you know it's bullshit rationally. Uh, there is still a kind of a fundamental duality between what counts as part of the like forward-facing movement of history as far as architectural form is concerned mm. and that which is part of the past. Right. Right? To to be generous to what would what this duality would mean. So it's just conservative in that straightforward sense? Yes. Reactionary, maybe even? Yes. And so you have the whole um Hitler liked classicism or fascist regimes liked classicism. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Um which after World War Two become connected to also Stalin turns out also likes classicism. And right. it becomes a whole like totalitarianism versus democracy as a, that replaces the pre-war capitalism versus socialism, fundamental political duality that uh, people think politics mm -hmm. about when they think about politics. Um, but generally you have this kind of conservative architecture is connected to authoritarian politics. Mm -hmm. If you like columns and classicism, uh, that, that that is a conservative or reactionary uh, aesthetic pre preference that matches um, that is a cult direct cultural expression that just is married to reactionary quote unquote authoritarian mm -hmm. politics. I think there there's a like a direct analog for let's say the pol politics from 2008 to 2021, 2022, when Biden was elected. Like, let's take the American right. political events. In 2008, as we've talked about many times, you have the economic crisis, uh, which was connected to real estate. This kind of discredits architecture and the Schumachers and Gary's and all the, and, uh, you know, Zaha's and all Liebskind, all these figures. Um, and also discredits neoliberalism as a as an economic model and even as like a political consensus. Then you have emerging, and and we would, as we talked about, we would call that like a right wing position, the neoliberal position, right? Um, even though it's cultural politics, maybe are centrist in some sense, or even liberal or left or whatever. Um, but then with Trump, 
you get an at least nominally anti-neoliberal political movement from the right, which uses some left critiques even, like anti-war, critiques of NAFTA, critiques of free trade, critiques of market market fundamentalism. Yeah, say, there's right? kind of... At, it, it, sometimes it was, it was explicit. Uh, I would say there was a, a stronger implicit... Uh, yeah. critique of neoliberal economic policy. Yeah. Well, and it was Coming this was right. this was limited basically to his campaign. And this was this was his this was arguments he made in the campaign. This has nothing to do with his actual policy. No, absolutely not. Obviously. Um, but you get a, a a really direct analog in architecture when in I think it was 2020 um, Trump issued an order basically banning modernist, quote-unquote, modern architecture, right. modernist architecture in federal buildings and calling for classical architecture. Right. So this is this is a split, like, within the right, let's say, um, between, like, a populist, a new populist right and the classic neoliberal, right. or the, the dominant neoliberal right. So Schumacher's whole narrative from the right is about modernity and the necessities of modernity, new right. technology, innovation, blah, blah, blah. And then this falls into crisis and then you get emerging like a, a, a more culturally conservative but also populist reaction from Trump, which is totally against this like mod- modernity for its own sake. Um, and I think actually his order, uh, the executive order was called Make federal buildings beautiful again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, and this was reported uh, as a as a kind of a scandal uh, in I don't know in American architectural circles. Yeah. Um, but it really it really points to a kind of an ambiguity in how uh, classicism is perceived. I mean, I've had conversations with friends who are not architects who um, simultaneously perceive classicism as totalitarian and modernism as totalitarian. Right. And it just depends on the context for when they make those judgments. Right. And it basically comes down to scale. Anything that's not like a detached family house is totalitarian. tends towards being totalitarian. Right, right, right. right. That's <laughs> a good point. But yeah, but that's, a, uh, that's where we would shift the argument. Yeah. Right. And start talking about program. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, like I, it's, it's, a very, it's a very good point. Uh, since the um, I mean the emergence of postmodern critique of modernism in the seventies essentially is about making the argument that modernism is totalitarian. That's yeah. the argument, and yeah. that is fundamentally embedded into contemporary mainstream architectural ideology. Yeah, in all ways, like it's totalitarian. Yeah. Uh, it's it's forcing uh, the working class people who are getting those flats in public housing. Uh, it's like normalizing and formatting their ways of life, destroying yeah. the spontaneity they had in the slums. Mm-hmm. Um, it is um, forcing a city that all looks the same uh, for the middle class onlooker and like visual consumer. Yeah, uh, it is. Uh, at a global level, it is colonial because mm-hmm. it is like destroying the authentic ways of life also of colonized peoples. So yeah. yeah, it's universalism is colonial. Right. And so and 
and effectively like the existence of modernist introduction of modernist architecture in in colonial territories yeah uh, during the colonial period and you as and administrative you, buildings and etc of, of the colonial enterprises that, but there's kind of a massification of the use of modernism after independence processes but that is perceived as a continuation of cultural colonialism right yeah and even within modernism there's a within the modern movement let's say there's a an increasing american hegemony over defining what it is with philip johnson's yes uh, international style exhibition yeah and Johnson, as I think we've already mentioned, was like a thoroughly right-wing figure, yeah. um, having been a Hitler sympathizer, basically. Right. Um, but he's so, also the great promoter in America of the two waves of what counts precisely in the simplistic modern, as in forward-looking yeah. architecture. He, pro he promotes modernism uh, as in the international style. Yeah. Um, and normalizes it in the, U in the US it. while by depoliticizing its European yep. foundations. Uh, and then does the exact same thing to what we would call a new, a contemporary new avant-garde with the deconstructivist uh, yeah. style, yeah. deconstructivist architecture exhibition in uh, 88? I don't know. Whatever, something Whatever. like that. And then he's obviously famous for the postmodernist uh, towers like the AT&T building yeah. with the, so he's with in the, the vanguard of broken pediment and all those like neo-gothic Houston oil company skyscrapers and like the proper evil shit that they, that they build in American <laughs> uh, business districts. Um, but even, even the, I mean the postmodern shift uh, and it's like, like it's, you know, not the deconstructivist uh, element, but the, like classicist, let's say, like Venturi um, brings back uh, elements of classicism, for instance, in the addition to the National Gallery in London. Right. And there'd been a modernist, kind of brutalist modernist project for that extension, which became the subject of a huge debate when Prince Philip, um, not Prince Philip, Prince Charles. Charles. Prince Charles uh, intervened when he was offered... He's basically offered to give a, a talk at a, I think, a Reba event. Mm -hmm. And he took the opportunity to actually like launch a manifesto against modernism. Right. Um, and somehow... Because like, Charles has the exact same architectural tastes as Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Um, Not exactly the same ones as Stalin. Stalin was quite a bit more progressive, but that is a more, <laughs> a more complex, complicated argument that he would have to make. And, and, and Charles was able to basically put enough pressure to change the commission. Um, and uh, Venturi got the commission in the end and did this whole like extension that was neoclassical but had like complexity and, and contradiction in it. Mm. So it was like a liberal twist right. on like the ambiguity right. of the language. Right. So I guess that's kind of, you know, walking the tightrope between deconstruction and the order of classicism. Right. Right. I've got this, I've got the article on the original Trump order. Shall I, shall I read some of it? Yeah. Like what, what, what is the, uh, the, the order say and what is the uh, liberal critique? I mean, it's obvious what liberal critique is, right? Yeah. It's, it's just like, because Trump is fascist, uh, he's reviving the kind of fascist, um, uh, impositions on uh, architectural on artistic expression in architecture that uh, we're used to from past history. Yeah, yeah, it's a straightforward. 
concern, and, I, and, and that it has legitimacy. That concern, and I think uh, I think part of it is a is not necessarily a defense of modern modernism per se, but of like diversity of yeah. style. Yeah, like this is from an NPR article on this from uh, December twenty first, twenty twenty, by Elizabeth Blair, um, and she says. Um, It's true that modernism abounds in D.C. Standing on a street corner near the National Mall, there's actually a mishmash of architectural styles. Let's talk about three of them. In the distance, the gleaming white pillars of the U.S. Capitol Dome, the kind of classical architecture the president's order favors. I like how they use the phrase, the president's order. Mm. Like, I I mean, does that mean his, like, regime? Or are we going to get, like, a Trump order? (laughs) Like a new column... uh... That would be nice, yeah. The Trump, uh, Trump the American, order. the American order. We we thought about uh, an American order one of these days, right? Yeah, we would we like did, to design we? a like a cavalry. It would have like a cowboy hat, like the the yeah, yeah, the yeah. little the little like uh, elements of the like Ionian scroll would be a cowboy hat. Yeah, at the top. and then it would be like a turkey. Yeah, and uh, like <laughs> <laughs> like a, a, a rustic tree trunk or something in there. And probably like a, I don't know, you'd have to put a fascies in there somehow. Mm. Um, the presidential order. Uh, so she says, closer in, there's a towering steel mesh scrim that's part of the Eisenhower Memorial, a contemporary design by Frank Gehry, which is under construction. This is actually one of the big debates. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Gehry's original design was ended up being rejected under, I think, Trumpian order uh, pressure. Right. Right behind the scrim, there's the beige, boxy, concrete-heavy Department of Education, a brutalist building, the style a lot of people love to hate. A lot of people love to love that, too. That's that Brutalism seems like a quintessential contemporary culture war. Yeah, object. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Marion Smith of the National Civic Art Society is one of these who dislikes brutalism. He looks at this entire vista with disgust. From where I'm standing... I see modernist structures, and the only hint of a classical building I can see is the top of the U.S. dome, he says. That is not where our, what our founders had in mind. This is a new <laughs> reigning orthodoxy of modernist, brutalist, postmodern design. Wow. Quite a diatribe. Modernist, brutalist, postmodern. And postmodern, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That's great. I mean, it... They need to. They, this this is, is part of the, the the typical example of the contemporary culture war. Is like yeah. Marxism and postmodernism are the same. Are the I was going to say this is this guy is denouncing cultural Marxism. Yeah, exactly. Basically. In architecture, <laughs> in architecture, by conflating modernism with postmodernism while yeah. arguing for reintroducing columns, which is basically the definition of, of, post-modernism. of postmodernism in a certain kind of yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's yeah, it's 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 nice. It's uh, um. Uh, what's the name of your? Uh, uh, fellow countryman, Canadian guy. What's 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 uh, alt right? Peter oh, Peterson. Peter, yeah, Jordan, Jordan it's Peterson. Jordan Peterson take on architecture. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the National Civic Art Society, uh, she writes, led a six-year campaign against Gary's Eisenhower Memorial, which forced the architect to make some changes to original design. I mean, I would probably support a campaign against that memorial, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, I would support a campaign for the demolition of Washington, D.C. Yeah. Period. But <laughs> yeah. anyway. Uh, and this organization has been the driving force behind uh, President Trump's executive order. 
the National Civic Art Society president, Justin Shubo, issued a statement today in praise of the final order. Since the mid-20th century, modernist mandarins controlling government architecture have been forcing ugly designs upon us, he wrote. President Trump stood firm for tradition and beauty in public architecture. I like the dig at China. Yeah, there's a dig at China in there. In, it's incredible. In, in, in there, it's amazing. And, and also contradictory, as we'll see. Yeah. Uh, tradition and beauty in public architecture and for the heartfelt desires of the American people. I mean, it is the totalitarianism thing, but this is the anti-modern version of the anti-totalitarian. Right. Like this is government bureaucracy demanding right. modernism. Right. We need a government order to demand right. an end to this is yes. this is like a version of the whole like deep state. Exactly. This is like the modernist deep state against exactly. Trump's uh... Exactly. <laughs> it's amazing. Okay, so now I've got another article from the same person, Elizabeth Blair in NPR, uh, after President Biden revokes Trump's controversial classical architecture order. Mm-hmm. This is from February 2021. Arbiters of good taste often disagree. That is certainly true of architecture. Late Wednesday, President Biden revoked a controversial executive order that then-President Donald Trump signed in December called Promoting Beautiful Federal Civic Architecture. Uh, I guess that's the name the order had in the end. It's like make architecture beautiful again was was catchier. Right. (laughs) The announcement from the White House was included in an executive order that revokes a number of Trump's actions as president. I mean, this article is basically just celebrating this change. But she also references this guy Shubo, the the from the Arts Commission that was backing Trump's order. In a statement to NPR, Shubo, who is now chairman of the Commission for Fine Arts, defends Trump's call to restore traditional architecture to federal buildings. He writes, Our federal architecture has been dismal for decades and has been designed in modernist styles that do not represent what ordinary Americans actually want. Shubo points to a National Civic Art Society survey by the Harris Poll. It found that 72% of American adults prefer classical and traditional design for federal buildings. There were wide majorities for tradition across all demographic groups, including political party affiliation, he says. Right. That wouldn't surprise me. No, of course not. I mean, Trump was elected. (laughs) Okay, this is the last point from this article. Um, Writing in the Washington Post recently, architecture critic Philip Kennicott called for Biden to, quote, move quickly to remove the current members of this Council for Fine Arts. Uh, He writes, they should be replaced with a diverse body of professionals, including women and people of color, who bring a wide and spirited range of aesthetic viewpoints to the commission's monthly meetings. Right. I've also got Kennecott's article here. The title is Trump made an arts commission all white, all male, and almost entirely mediocre. And this is by Philip Kennecott, who I f- is... I find that hard to believe on the almost entirely mediocre. Almost entirely, yeah. The almost uh, five seems... Yeah, who, to me. who are his, who are his uh, faves on this list? Um... And this is by Philip Kennicott, who himself is all white, all male, and I'm sure entirely mediocre. <laughs> so it's clear that the liberal critique 
of classicism is on the basis of lack of diversity and they take the typical like representative diversity question. Right. So whatever the architecture is, it's important that you get a diverse group of people in the room talking about it, talking about it and making the decisions. Yeah. So I've got another thing here. I mean, there are, there are valid points of concern. I mean, there's, um, in a, in a New York times, uh, article, uh, from the same time from December 21, 2020 by Zachary small. Um, it is, uh, uh, an architectural professor at Columbia, Reinhold Martin is quoted mm. as, uh, uh, stating the executive order is meaning meaningless. It is an effort to use culture to send coded messages about white supremacy and political hegemony, mm. which I think is a valid point. I mean, yeah. obviously, no one, no one gives a shit. Like, it's, it doesn't matter the actual if if if, if the buildings have columns or not. Yeah, it it, it, fu- it functions as a tactical gesture of that to signal the reactionary culture, the reactionary side of the culture war. Yeah, and it goes hand in hand with like uh, references to like Western civilization yeah, and like the I don't know the Judeo-Christian. Yeah. Uh, order or whatever yeah. the all the arguments that liberals now make and anyway as well but um but uh in, in a specifically yeah, took, conservative a change ethos. of administration for those arguments yes. to be made yes. by different people exactly but they don't come with columns anymore right um the um the 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 the, the difference between the defense of western civilization uh between the liberal side and the conservative side is specifically on this point actually it's on uh, the conservative side is the old-timey return to roots, and the liberal argument on the supremacy of Western civilization is on we are, well, the Western civilization is better because it's more progressive. I I hear what therefore, you're saying. Therefore, has accepts new avant-garde architecture and weird, shapey things with titanium. I, I I hear what you're saying, and I think that's definitely true to a certain extent, but. It's also not true to a large extent. I've got here an article in Dezine by uh, a regular feature, it seems, in our in our podcast, Michel Ogundehin. Oh, my God. We need to stop picking specifically on, on, on the same people. It's purely yeah, accidental. It's but... purely accidental, but, I mean, they keep writing this stuff. <laughs> it's not our fault. Um, and this is called... The irresistible draw of Bridgerton reflects our need for a new aesthetic. Mm. Bridgerton, I don't know, you, I'm sure you haven't watched this. I haven't actually watched it either. Nope. Yeah, this is like a Netflix sensation okay. uh, TV drama uh, set in the Regency period, which is uh, early 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of these kind of... Um, revisionist history diversification of the ruling class things kind of like hamilton like the king's black oh like like what if all the slave owners were actually just black and slavery never happened right right Um, right this one is i guess british aristocracy what if they were what if like the people who were colonized were actually part of the right colonial power right in britain Right. right um and we don't actually have to talk about we don't have to talk about what the, the, col- the, col- the actual what colonialism. colonialism actually was, yeah, uh, um, and also what the domestic. We just have a representation of the, the the slave class in 
in the slave, in the slave holding class, the slave holding class yeah. while erasing slavery. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is but this this is a specific uh, twist, which I think goes with a lot of recent TV, which is explicitly about aristocracy, right? Uh, and to go to go with like the film on uh, Mary Queen of Scots, mm. um, and which had kind of a a liberal political message, and I don't know the the queen. Yeah, there's a whole thing there's, about there's the all queen. this there's all this like new liberal monarchism is like right it's some sort of trend. Right, right, right. Um, so I'm gonna I'm just gonna read this article. Netflix TV show Bridgerton's interior interiors will lead to a return of the exuberant... Oh, sorry, Ogunda Hinde is an interior designer, right? Yes. We've, we had established that. Right? Yeah. Netflix TV show Bridgerton's interiors will lead to a return of the exuberant Regency style to distract us from our troubled times. The second series of Bridgerton, which streams tomorrow, will prompt a major new look for interiors, as I wrote in my trends report for 2022. Quote, this sentimental recoloring of history will prompt a Regency revival as we freshly appreciate the uplifting potential of architectural adornment, both inside and out. This statement was about a lot more than the show being a Netflix winner. Apparently, 82 million households watched season one in the first 28 days after it launched in December 2020. Bridgerton is indeed escapist, diverse, and sexy, just what was needed in the, in the thick of Christmas lockdowns. However, it's the resonance of the 19th century British Regency setting that makes it so influential from a style and cultural point of view. This was a historical moment that shares more than a hint of an echo with today. And yet the Regency was but a brief snapshot in time when the sitting English monarch, King George III, was deemed unfit to rule. His eldest son stepped in as proxy from 1811 to 1820. He was named the Prince Regent hence the period moniker, the Regency. In theory, he deputized as king until his father passed, at which point he himself was crowned King George IV, ruling for the blah, 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 blah. In reality, he had little interest in the responsibilities of governance or the previously admired piety of his father. Instead, he used his newfound influence to indulge his love of architecture and fashion. Such extravagance didn't come cheap, though. So this is the the culturalist turn in like, but is, is 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 the author saying that this was good? Like he was a patron of the arts. Yes. As opposed to he didn't care about the people and ruling the kingdom, and he just wanted to indulge to party the ruling and class, the ruling class uh, in 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 fancy shit, fancy diversions. Yeah. The prince regent, who spoke four languages, propelled extraordinary advances in the arts, design, music, and sciences. New decorative styles burst forth, inspired by everywhere from Egypt to India. Oh, I wonder why. Right. <laughs> I wonder where Indeed. that came from. Indeed. I wonder how they, they got that stuff. <laughs> he commissioned the exotically ornate Brighton Pavilion as his personal he pleasure He invented palace. Orientalism. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is exactly the architecture that is most heavily critiqued for being colonial in Britain, right? Like the Brighton Pavilion... Is the not anymore though? Like now, not, now colonial architecture is modernism, yeah. and what contemporary decolonial discourse uh, perceives as uh, anti-colonial is just nineteenth-century Orientalist fetishization of the other cultures to be consumed yeah. by the white man. Yep. Yeah. 
Roman de Clef, penned anonymously by aristocrats of the day, captured... Other, culture, other cultures are equal to ours in the universal marketplace shelf of uh, consumer yeah. objects. Yeah. But ours are probably better just because they're fancier and richer. Sure, I mean, even the act of putting it in the, in the marketplace shelf is already already requires a process of adaptation so that it makes them basically ours anyway. The yeah. other ones. Ramon de Clef, penned anonymously by aristocrats of the day, captured the fervor um, and provided much entertainment for the lower classes. I don't know what that means. For the upper echelons, life was fun, fashionable, fashionable and frivolous, the antithesis of what had come before. And this is the mood that Bridgerton, based on the books of a contemporary American romance novelist, Julia Quinn, perfectly captures. Yeah, layers of pastel-colored, heavily embellished silken clothing for men as well as women are mirrored in rooms adorned from floor to ceiling in delicately hand-painted, idyllic, verdant scenes or exotic portrayals of the Orient, the imagined perfection of both near and far. Ornamentation for the sake of it is everything. Fragrant wisteria drips across perfectly symmetrical facades. Trims and tassels finish drapes and upholstery. Extravagant gilt frames surround flattering portraits, while elegantly patterned dinnerware and fluted colored glass goblets adorn tables laden with food. Yeah, there... <laughs> the... It, I, the, it definitely... I... I... They're definitely, you're right, it definitely is a uh, liberal aesthetic reactionaryism yeah. uh, going on nowadays. Yeah. A kind of uh, return to the 19th century. Uh, I mean, we see it in fashion, like the like pe people just, like in, in, in school, right? We see like people dressing in like, like Prussian uh, or Victorian. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of imperial mustaches. Yes, imperial <laughs> mustaches and like uh, vests. Yeah, with yeah. buttons and things. And, yeah, uh, you 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 have suits. And, yes, uh, yeah. you you have this as a kind of a, a a specific type of aesthetically reactionary hipsterism. Yeah, um, which is clearly liberal. Like it, it's this is this is not issuing some kind of conservatist conservative in in, in political terms uh, signaling. The signaling isn't that. Yeah. Um, the um, so the and and you also see it like I, I remember specifically seeing critiques of the Hunger Games uh, films. I was just about to mention that. Okay, so I win. I won. Um, <laughs> Like liberal critiques of the Hunger Games, yeah, in which they they see uh, the 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 political message of the Hunger Games, which is kind of a pop culture thing, as being essentially fascistic, as in like the unwashed masses of the plorables are rising up against what they perceive as a queer coded aristocracy, because mm. uh, I mean the decadent aristocratic class of that fictional society is portrayed aesthetically yeah. as a decadent aristocratic class <laughs> yeah. of uh, 19th century and earlier. everyone wears silk everyone wears it, it makeup just, it just looks with... like versailles with a postmodern twist yeah right yeah but of course there is 
uh, an element of appropriation of that aesthetic among some sections of queer culture. And, 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 and I've seen liberals critique that movie right. on the basis of essentially portraying the ruling class as being like the evil gay conspiracy that, is, that constitutes wow, the normal I, ruling class. I had no and, idea. And the ordinary people, yeah. the normals, uh, are rising up against this dictatorship of the... the, the Profligate elites. The, the degenerate queer yeah, yeah. elites. Right. And they perceive that as a fascist signaling and that film, like a popular uprising against the ruling class is perceived... Yeah, I, I've read arguments making the explicitly this point. I thought though that I mean, having seen the Hunger Games, right? There, there are like people like they're they're like revolutionary hairdressers on the side of the uprising. Yes, there are and, like, class stylists. There like, are class trainers. All the all the like stylists for the Hunger Games TV production become become like, traitors to their allies. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. That's true, actually. Like I thought it was extremely like consensual in kind of cultural pol- political yeah. terms. But even that is not enough. To the apparently. liberal framework. I mean, I have yeah. I have critiques of the politics of the Hunger Games. Right. My specific critique <laughs> is that at the at the end, in the third movie, they have to present the leader of the revolutionary movement that constructed the whole fucking thing yeah. as basically being a bad guy. Ah. After having constructing the entire thing. Right, leading the revolution and fucking winning and destroying that rotten culture, yeah, that rotten society, leading the uh, proletariat to victory, yeah, uh, constructing a massive underground movement and blah blah blah. Um, then at the very end of the final movie, she has to be portrayed as oh, she's just another totalitarian genocidal dictator wannabe, yeah, yeah, yeah. and now yeah, yeah. she has to be killed by the by our hero with a with an arrow at the end. Right, right. Um, like now she wants to do another Hunger Games, but with the children of the former aristocrats, and she just mm. wants to restart the cycle of hatred. Or uh, and that's like mm-hmm. she needs to be Stalin, right? You, yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. just have the revolutionary leader do the whole thing, and like there needs to be and some, that be good, being good. There needs to be some punishment for actually winning. Yes, the revolution. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, the person who do, does what it takes to win must be portrayed as evil. Right. To right. the most ridiculous extent. And that is the final turn of the Hunger Games thing. Yeah. Uh, that I, it's just like paradigmatic liberal, post colonial, neo colonial uh, p- position. Right. right. We, sub- we think they should be independent, but we don't like that they're doing armed struggle to do that. They should be better than us who are doing armed struggle to prevent them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, there is, I mean, I, I didn't have this nuance of the liberal critique of the Hunger Games. I kind of assumed that the Hunger Games was fairly consensual as a critique of like uh, an imperial, colonial, capitalist Even if it's just class society, yeah. Class society. Um, but there's a fun twist here, which is that in the original debate around classicism from the Trumpian side, mm-hmm. uh, there's a quotation here in that, uh, NPR article um, disca- uh, talking about the FBI building in downtown Washington, which is like a big brutalist concrete building. Um, uh, Utah Senator Mike Lee describes it as looking like, quote, an abandoned set from the Hunger Games. Okay. So it, the critique from from the right is that it looks too much like, I guess, 
the working class industrial areas uh-huh. in the Hunger Games. Right. And then from the liberal, uh, from that Dezine article, it's that everything should look like the capital in the Hunger yes. Games. Yes, yes. Like they want it to look like just a different set from right. the Hunger Games. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, and you clearly see how I, you just have the the liberal position starts becoming one where they identify with the ruling class through aesthetics, right? Yeah. I should give the author of the Dezine article um, credit um, for recognizing some of the political contradiction here. Mm -hmm. Um, So after that, you know, gratuitous aesthetic description of short luxury, um, she writes, as such, the oat styles of the day epitomize an abject denial of the wider reality for the backdrop to this flagrant profligacy was great political and economic upheaval following the American and French revolutions, not least mm. the ongoing Napoleonic Wars with their legions of conscripted commoner troops battling to prevent France's invasion of lands from Europe to Russia. Closer to home, poverty was rife. She's also forgetting that the vast amounts of uh, poor, like working class base, uh, poor troops on the French side yeah. Trying to fight to preserve the conquests of the French Republican Revolution against the several holy alliances of reactionary monarchist governments all over. Like right. Napoleon was the good guy people. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing in this obviously about also the colonial and like larger colonial imperial context right. of this time. Which is actually at the center of the aesthetic. So that's kind of an important <laughs> important point, I think. Um, and yet it's a truism that when the world is in extreme turmoil, creativity flowers. Those possessed of an artistic temperament, such as the Prince Regent, rail against the zeitgeist and drive it somewhere new. This is what happened in the Regency, and it's the period I believe we're entering now. Thus, the irresistible draw of Bridgerton reflects our need for a new aesthetic. I mean, this argument about extreme turmoil and creativity flowering, this is uh, just goes back this this kind of meme or trope goes back to Orson Welles' monologue in The Third Man right. about how the Renaissance was a time of like uh, incredible incredible violence and criminality and turmoil, but right. that's where you get the best culture. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas you know Switzerland it was peaceful and never had any you know never had any art. Basically. Right, right. Um, Switzerland obviously like Swiss. Mercenary troops were at the center of basically all war and violence like yeah. throughout Europe at the time. Yeah. yeah. So that's bullshit. Uh, but also, Renaissance Europe was relatively peaceful um, uh, because most of the wars were fought by uh, by mercenaries and and weren't fought actually were fought by professional troops, which didn't have a necessarily a real stake in like killing each other. So they were kind of like show battles and kind of like fakery. Right, um, but yeah, the, the Renaissance wasn't. I mean, there were there was like skullduggery, obviously famous skullduggery, but not not like it's not like the the Thirty Years' War or anything like that. It's not one of these massive. Yeah, it goes on. We we get another reference to it's like the Roaring Twenties mm. after the horror of World War One. This is we're not in the Roaring Twenties right now. To think that we are right now in a time analogous to the Roaring Twenties is preposterous. We are in the roaring 30s. Roaring in what sense? 
in that everything is collapsing all around us. Yeah. Everything is in shambles. Yeah. Uh, people are getting poorer at a very accelerated pace, which, by the way, was also happening in the 20s. Mm. Like the cultural roaring 20s is, a, is basically a right-wing revisionist history of what the reality was in the 20s. Uh, it's it's specifically a look at how cool middle class culture uh, was in the in the twenties, but actually there was no substantial improvement of the living conditions of the overwhelming majority. If, even in yeah, the yeah, most advanced yeah. uh, attempts at social democracy of the time, Weimar right. Germany, like it was, it right. was everything was fucking terrible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, the 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 social crisis was real before twenty nine. Right. Okay, maybe I, maybe I'm not doing justice to her, to her analogy here. <laughs> no, but we are definitely post. We're, po- we're definitely we're in post the 30s. Twenty nine. Yeah. yeah, we're definitely in the thirties. On a wider scale, I'll ju- this is just the end, sort of last point we'll all take from this. On a wider scale, the birth of a neo regency is simply a reaction to life being so relentlessly draining for such a long time. The everyday battered first by hidden foes and now more painfully visible ones. Such a move with its inherent decadence and delicacy is a rebellion, a lurch from lockdown to levity, come what may, a forceful jettisoning of gloom and doom. Except this time around, it's not about ignoring tragedies happening elsewhere, than fervently wishing to celebrate small moments of joy and unexpected luxury in any way we can, wherever we can. To decorate our nests is a primal instinct, it's how we mark our territory, signaling that we have a personalized place of retreat to return to. It's why losing your home or homeland is so incredibly traumatic. I mean, she's literally making Marx's argument about religion as the opium of the masses. Right. Um, which, by the way, to clarify what I'm saying... Marx's argument about religion being the opium of the masses is not that, and therefore is bad. Right. It's an analytical argument. It's uh, like it, it provides escapism essentially by uh, representing in a, a metaphysical shape uh, the objective reality of suffering. Um, it's a form of coping, and, right. and it is therefore socially necessary, and will continue to be socially necessary until that suffering is actually eliminated in the material world. Right. Uh, it's not a critique of religion, as in uh, religion bad, get rid of it. Right. It's fundamentally commonly misunderstood as such. Um, so she is basically making that same point about uh, uh, pop pop culture portrayals of ruling class luxury, which make it accessible by proxy to the suffering masses. Um, which, of course, is the argument for uh, like. Th- what in Portugal we would call pink magazines, just covering the life of the aristocracy and the royals and the, right, and right, the rich right. people and the, the uh, actors and uh, Hollywood and like, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's just it's all the same shit. It's, it's a kind of a weird glorification of that. Pink pink magazine that sounds like a conservative slur or something or like. Well, I embrace this con- <laughs> Portuguese com- culture conservative slur of pink magazine uh, about these things. Um, the um, of course the, the the point in Marx's critique of religion that comes out of that is that the there is a function of critique of ideology here, in which 
it is in, in the understanding of the the truths hidden underneath the falsehood of religious belief that um, like the, the the job of critical ideology is not to denounce religion as evil it is to extract the truths hidden mm. underneath it and ex and and show those truths in their material reality in the material objective reality of those truths of suffering and and uh, and, uh, and exploitation right um, so the progressive position is not to just be religious <laughs> the progressive position is to use religion ex explore religion and understand and this is very early in marx's life when religion is still kind of a main kind of proxy for the broader concept of ideology as it then emerges and right coming out of like Feuerbach's writing on the family. yeah yeah exactly this is still uh marx coming from the young hegelians uh group um like separating himself from them in the process of um and the position here is the the progressive act is to explore these ideological structures in order to unveil the truths beneath them and then put those truths first, like front and center in the popular consciousness. Right. As a way of transforming the coping mechanisms that are religion and ideology in more general terms, or these, like the access to proxy access to luxury through yeah. TV shows and pink magazines, uh, transforming those into uh, an actual demand to share right. in prosperity, not right. in which will not be the same shape, will not have the same form prosperity, but to yeah. have access to actual material prosperity, to an end it's to like, suffering, yeah. a revolutionary drive to transforming the oppressive structures wherein that coping is even necessary. Right. So that is the that is a progressive position, and that is a function of critique of ideology plus political praxis. Right. Right. So what not, do you not see? demanding not demanding silks to decorate your flat, but no. demanding like. A flat. A flat, for example. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the, what you see in liberal culture, and it starts relatively early, but what you you already have a certain equivocation be, uh, between embracing religion and embracing the critique of religion already in, for example, Walter Benjamin. There are points in which you see him essentially uh, glorifying uh, a certain form of alienation as uh, a form of awakening, particularly mm. when he talks about drugs. <laughs> right. Uh, when he talks about being stoned. Uh, which, of course, then continues into hippie culture and uh, in many ways up until today, right? Yeah. Um, it's one part of the like liberal... Even today, it's still part of the liberal uh, notion of being progressive and breaking with established given truths. Um, but um, you do see this uh, increasing embrace of the representation of wealth as an okay substitute for the actuality of it. Yeah. It's part of representative representation politics in general terms. It's not just like the problem with representation is broader than just we want a black president to oversee the racist regime. Uh, it's representing a better world 
as opposed to actualizing it in very much broader terms than just that. Right. And I would say this is part of that. Yeah. Yeah, the final kind of design uh, forecast here is architecturally, we'll see a corresponding embrace of ornamentation, a revival of pergolas, porticos, and decorative brickwork alongside the classical tropes seen on original Regency buildings in Britain's heritage cities like Bath and Brighton. Right. So this is make architecture like beautiful Bath. again, basically. Yeah. This is the same position. It's the same position. Same position. Except probably like more expensive because like fixating on the detail. And it's not just about official government buildings. Yeah. It's about the living environment in general. Yeah. yeah it's, it's not about representing society or the state. It's about private right. uh, expression and right. enjoyment. But if, I mean, we, I can now pick up this point to make a dialectic shift. Mm. But that dialectical shift will have to wait till next week. Right. Um, we've already covered quite a lot today. So uh, stay tuned for the dialectical shift. Yeah, next we're going to talk about the right wing in socialism. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, a twist. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, as usual www.patreon.com slash streetsweeperpod Yeah, please uh, support us if you can. Yeah. That would be hugely appreciated. For sure. And those who already do, please do leave. There's a, a post there uh, for patrons only. Leave your comments or questions. So we are, we are very happy to engage in that way. Yeah, and we would really like to do mailbag, mail, mailbag style episodes at yeah. some point. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. See ya. Catch us next week. <laughs>